Are you interested in economic geography? What do you think about the political influence on cities? How can we put on environmental lenses on cities? Stay tuned for answers from Anthony Kent. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Dr. Anthony Kent, economic geographer, researcher and educator. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, community empowerment, dependencies on political systems, dysfunctional dystopias, wealth generation machines and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Anthony Kent is an economic geographer. He is program coordinator for the sustainability and urban planning program at RMIT University and is affiliated with the Center for Urban Research also at RMIT University. His research focuses on second-tier cities, industrial agglomerations and labor markets. He also consults, teaches and researches on the urban geography of Indonesian cities. Anthony is an associate editor for Urban Policy and Research and has previously consulted for the Victorian Auditor General's Office and the Knowledge Sector Innovative Jakarta and was formerly Secretary of the UN-affiliated Eastern Regional Organizations for Planning and Human Settlements. And with that, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your appearance on the podcast. Can we start with your description of economic geography? What does economic geography mean? Well, it tries to understand the link between places and economic activity. And it can be interpreted in a couple of ways. I think one is a particular location, what's going on there and how it interacts with economic activity and vice versa. But it's also increasingly important. We've got to look at how the dots are joined. So in other words, not just what's happening in a particular location, but the links to other locations that's increasingly determined what we find locally in terms of the jobs available, the type of jobs, the amount of unemployment, the types of industries, the types of infrastructure that are available. And you can think at any geographical scale you like, really. I mean, you could say global links, but it might be metropolitan links. It might be interstate links as well. Curiously enough, though, sometimes there's some missing parts there that some locations drop out of those linkages altogether and they're on their own. And occasionally it's not a really big deal, but usually it is a problem. The more isolated a particular location is, even or the more difficult people living in a particular location find it to link to other locations, more difficult they find it economically. Now, that's not just within a metropolitan area, but between metropolitan areas and between countries as well. Do you mean by links, transportation links or internet links? What are these links? Well, in the old days, it would be purely hard transport links, but increasingly we're talking about information technology links. And Mm -hmm. although there's a sense that information technology is ubiquitous, it's more ubiquitous for some people than others. And there's parts of Victoria still, and there's parts of the world still where information technology is still quite poor. I mean, I know myself up here in Sunbury that at about 4.30 in the afternoon, I have a bit of trouble getting on the internet because all the school kids are home and there's only a certain number of Telstra towers in the area. There's swings and roundabouts in regard to this, but yeah, look, transport's a traditional one, but information technology is a new one. We had an economist on the podcast, Professor Matthew McCartney from the Charter Cities Institute in the 90s interview episode. And he, as an economist, talked about how weird that although economists are working with parts of the city, 
So trade and transportation and all over the place, but they don't really think about the city itself. How is that your economic geographer background can combine these two? I think you sort of half said it already by simply inserting that concept of a city into economics. A lot of economics is about national figures. It's gross domestic product, it's inflation, it's average house prices, but that really is the veneer of it. And I think you need to go down to a smaller geographical scale to really understand how it's impacting on ordinary people. And I think that economic geographers can be good at that, particularly from the quantitative side of things with tools such as census data, but that needs to be complemented. And in some cases, it is complemented by the qualitative side of things by asking people questions such as, how hard do you find it to get to work? I mean, you could look at that in the census data and see most people in location X work on the other side of town, but that's only half the story. So economic geographers are almost morphing into sociologists in a way by asking questions about how people think and how people feel about circumstances. Is economic geography a special place and very few people work in that space or it's getting bigger and more people interested in that? Yeah, look, it's a very complex question because there's a lot of things going on there. I mean, you probably have to step back and say there's been human geography and economic geography is a subset of human geography. It's not a subset of economics, but human geography has been under challenge for quite a while in a couple of ways. And it's just technical stuff such as university departments have shrunk or human geography has been subsumed under other departments as well. And that's got nothing to do with economic geographers. It just seems to be the way that academia has gone. But look, economic geography is a bit of an enigma in that sense. I was about to say that the university sector's gone more and more towards vocational orientation and away from things that are supposedly irrelevant, such as what the Greeks thought of the environment or or Latin or what have you. But economic geography should be front and centre in terms of practicalities, but for some reason it isn't. And I guess you could speculate on why that is. I think that both students and to some extent the community misunderstand. If I say I'm an economic geographer, people are generally baffled and they probably think I am an economist. But the thing from a government point of view is that economic geography is a little bit scary because it really does ask questions about what is the unemployment here and why is there unemployment here? And they're exactly the sort of questions that government doesn't like that much, or at least politicians don't like that much. And there is a kind of a somewhat obscure link to funding regarding that, because the bottom line is that I mean, economic geography is really a university field. You tend not to get it expressed out in the professional world. I mean, I suppose one could say that the economic planners in local government are close to it, but they're probably not not as close as one would think. So economic geography has been a victim of human geography more broadly. There's something about the narrative or the title of it that tends to scare various parties off. And it is also true that some of the most prominent economic geographers tend to be the most left-leaning academics with David Harvey being a classical example of that. And they're talking about scary stuff about reorganisation of communities to push capital out of the way. And this kind of just blows the mind of funders. I mean, you know, it's a tricky, we're a very small tribe, as a matter of fact, in Australia. In Europe, it's a bit of a different story. In China, it's a bit of a different story, but it's expressed very much in a quantitative manner. So yeah, we're a small tribe. Do you feel yourself and your knowledge and your expertise closer to human geography than a multidisciplinary but practical understanding of how things are linked in urban areas and what could be the reasons for those linkages? 
Well, we straddle both the quantitative and the qualitative side, and the qualitative side leans towards human geography, Mm -hmm. and the quantitative side leans towards econometrics. And those two approaches are actually poles apart. And it might partly explain also one of the difficulties of economic geography because it scans, you know, such a large area. And if you're a qualitative economic geographer, you actually can't do the econometric stuff. You don't actually understand it and vice versa. And so very rarely you see, let's say, a journal article in the field of economic geography that does both, that actually presents econometric style of data and then does qualitative interviews. I mean, admittedly, you've only got 8,000 words to play with. So we've actually got a two sides of the same school. Does the university structure help you with this multidisciplinary ideology? Or even in the universities, you are just picked apart because you cannot belong to any of that? Because I understand that journals are really trying to specialize in one direction. And that's why it would be really hard to get published with a more holistic, with a more complex article. Does the university structure help you with researching and trying to find practical solutions for real problems? It's an interesting question because at that level, it doesn't really matter if one calls oneself an economic geographer. It depends on whether you get funding for the research you want to do, which may happen to do with economic geography. I don't think there's an issue with being an economic geographer per se, but again, it gets back to the point I made about restructuring of universities and how geography in general has been pushed aside somewhat. The other misconception about, I think, economic geographers is that they're really these kind of hard-headed quantitative analysts. And if you look at the really good ones, they're anything but. So again, getting back to the David Harvey example, whatever you want to call yourself, whatever sub-discipline, you need to have a grasp of other disciplines at one level. I mean, I've got a another degree in environmental science, environmental policy, and in sociology, apart from eventually doing a PhD in economic geography. And I'm working with those ideas as well. And even in the writing about economic geography, those ideas tend to come in and it makes it more interesting and it makes it more accessible. But that's just me. I mean, I've had quite a broad multidisciplinary education and others may not have. And there's a lot of cultural stuff going on here as well. So in Europe, you may well find, I suspect, faculties where you've got a number of economic geographers, whereas here you would have a geography department as an economic geographer. And on the other hand, they might not, like me, they may not even be in a geography department at all. They're in an urban planning department. So there's a lot of subtleties in politics going on about how economic geography emerges and how it connects to the rest of the discipline and how it actually has an influence. Thank you very much for clearing economic geography out. Let's move to the cities. Before I ask you about the future of cities, understanding that you have a very complex idea what a city can be. Can you explain us what the city means to you? It means a number of things, and they're certainly not necessarily compatible. I think, in essence, I see cities as this gigantic job machine or capital accumulation machine, and it accumulates capital in such a way and is this gigantic job machine in such a fashion that it just manages to keep people satisfied. It just manages to keep people from preventing going crazy and rebelling. And it's a remarkable achievement. And I can't figure out whether there's some sort of oppressive element in it or a time element in it, or whether it's just a really smart sort of machine that exploits and makes people's lives difficult just as it satisfies them at the same time with people themselves playing part of that game. And part of the equation of this image I have of cities being, well, big cities, big cities, that is Melbourne and Jakarta and Manila and places like that as being this gigantic 
job machine, capital accumulating machine, is the destruction of time, the destruction of spare time, family time, if you want to call it, also civic time in terms of taking that deep breath and saying, well, okay, what sort of city do we want to live in? I mean, when you think about it, if you look at busy people in Australia, for example, I mean, are they really going to spend their holidays walking around the neighbourhood talking to neighbours about what sort of street do they want, or are they going to jump on a plane and go to Bali? So you've got this kind of intensity there, and even the relief of the intensity tends to draw people away from what's right under their nose. I mean, really, I think that people are so busy with their time that their experience of their neighbourhood, for example, is often when they come into the driveway over night time and walk into the house, and then rush off and do shopping on the weekend, or go see the football or whatever. So there's two images of the cities emerging here, really. One is what I see as this kind of, as I say, an economic machine, but the other alternative which is something that we've lost, is the civic society type of city where citizens are getting together and discussing things and experiencing the city on a day-to-day basis. And when we say city, we tend not to think of it in terms of a place to live, curiously enough. We tend not to use that phrase. We're thinking in terms of the economics of it rather than sitting back and talking about it in terms of habitat as a place to live. And I think that COVID opened a window, albeit in a sort of a backhanded way, of what that alternative might look like when in Melbourne, for example, we couldn't go further than five kilometres. So in other words, all of a sudden, we really had to be very, very obviously aware of where the nearest park is or what the nearest street is like or what what the nearest shops are like. And you still see that sentiment is still percolating through about the way people think about cities. But I think there is a long way to go. You just throw a very interesting question. How do you imagine your ideal city? First and foremost, it's a place to live. And sure, work is part of it, but number one priority, it's a place to live first, and it's a place to work second, instead of the other way around. When you think about that, if people really had that as a high priority, they'd start questioning things such as being caught in traffic jams in terms of possibly you must own a home or you must own a home in the city. Or you should reconsider, I guess, identifying yourself or your status with your position in a city in terms of a job or in terms of location. And that's ironic, isn't it? Of course, if you forget about the prestige of living in a certain area and start thinking about the quality of that area instead, then you're probably going to save a lot of money apart from anything else. Okay. And is your idea city the future of cities for you? Or what does the future of cities mean for you? The future of the city will be determined by broader political currents with which it will interact. So it depends on what kind of overarching political system we end up with. And I talk as if it is not the end of history, as Fukuyama suggested. I think we're pretty much in a state of flux. And at the core of this is what we mean by democracy and what kind of democracy that we want. And I think that the representative democracy model is proving inadequate to allow people with genuine voice in the termination of a number of things, including what the city should look like. Now, if that shifts to the, well, let's call it the left, then I think there's a hope for the city because people within cities will start talking to each other about what sort of place they want to live in. On the other hand, a city can operate very, very well in a functional way and be very nice environmentally and be pretty much an authoritarian dictatorship. And and Singapore is a good example of that. So it could go either way. And it's a curious thing that we can say Melbourne on the one hand, Singapore on the other, and they both have some very good things about them as cities. They have completely different political system, but they're they're still cities. You know, they're still functioning cities that are are producing jobs and producing lifestyles. So it's a funny thing. It's sort of a balancing act at the moment. I think the future of the city is dependent on the future of the political systems that we have in the future. 
You are the first one saying that the future of cities is depending on the political system. Some also suggested that the political system will influence the city, but it's not solely dependent on the political system. Why do you say that it's solely dependent on the political system? Well, I'll take a step back from that. I'm not sorry it is solely dependent on okay. it because, again, getting back to the Singapore versus Melbourne example, if you just walked around Singapore or if you just walked around Melbourne, you couldn't really tell what sort of political systems produce them because they both look like modern cities. So there is a bit of an, an enigma there. But the city can be a kind of a vessel for political activity, for better or worse. It can be very good at controlling the citizens. And indeed, that was the traditional view, this kind of medieval view of cities was to build a wall around them to prevent the bad guys from getting in, but also preventing people from getting out. And you still see these walls and gates around some older cities in the world. But the alternative is somewhat romantic and far from perfect Greek idea of a city as a civic space, as the ideal space to freely exchange political ideas because there's just so many people in one place and there's so many forms of social and other forms of communication that can take and occur. It's a bit of an enigma. So that's why I mean, because it can go one way or another, we probably need to look above a city, try and get a sense of which way it might go. I also get the feeling that it not only depends on what political system will we have in the future, but what political system does it start from? So this, what kind of political system was the city established in? So for example, Melbourne currently is a democratic system. So we assume that it will be also a democratic system. And that's why the city will reflect this democratic system. Partly to do with consensus. And in spite of all the imperfections that I spoke about before, about genuine public deliberation, that we have some things that we take for granted into it in Australia that we're simply not going to let go of, fortunately. Just to give you an example of that is compulsory voting. I don't know whether we'll ever have a referendum on compulsory voting, but if we do, I bet you everyone votes in favour of it. And we're one of the few countries that, that have it. But that's just one case of, of an enshrined procedure that we have. And there's some certainties about Australia which are very beneficial, that there are fairly clear compared with some more ambiguous countries such as the United States, which is very much the originator of a lot of the ideas about liberty. It's not matched by economic liberty. You have great inequality, usually on racial lines and other lines, which is one reason why democracy itself is being undermined. But in Australia, we've got a set of circumstances where that doesn't apply. I mean, we've got this uh, reliance, which has worked so far on export commodities, for example, that have provided a reasonable standard of living. But we should never forget that we have two very important words to remember about Australia, safety net. So in other words, it catches people who get into trouble and we're getting better at it. We're actually expanding it. So we've got the National Disability Support Scheme coming on. We've got Medicare. Now, these are things which, if you suggested them in the United States, you'd be regarded as some kind of anarcho-communist or uh, God knows what. And all this sort of bizarre ideological stuff gets dragged in opposition to it. And fortunately, we in Australia look over at that and think, well, what is wrong with these guys? Uh, mind you, I think there's always a bit of a threat about Australian culture being swamped by that kind of stuff. And to me, always a litmus test is at the football, how many people actually sing the national anthem when they play that. The more people that sing the national anthem, the more disturbed I get. And if they start putting their hands on their hearts as well, then I'm really going to get worried. You know? 
Well, Australians don't take that sort of shit all that seriously. We don't take a lot all that seriously. And in a way, that's also our fault. We tend not to sit down and think of things through very much. But fortunately, we tend not to take ourselves too seriously. And we don't take leadership very seriously either. And we don't take intellectuals seriously. That's the negative part, unlike the French, where you have intellectuals who are household names. And here in Australia, we would probably have Peter Singer, but that's about it. I can't really you know, think of any academic who is an intellectual who is a household name. So yeah, look, we chug along, but you end up with this paradox about Australia that we're all, she'll be right, mate, and we're all treat each other equal, but we're not equal at all. It's a quite an unequal society. You already mentioned some problems or challenges. What are the three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities for you? Well, the first is vulnerability and climate change is the obvious one. The second is probably less likely in the Australian context, but it's hanging around, obviously, and that's geopolitical implications. So, for example, if there was a military conflagration, then cities would be the target for those. So they're the two things that representations of vulnerability that I can think of. But the second one is the worst case scenario where this complex and difficult circumstances we find even in cities like Melbourne turn into something really horrible. In other words, you've got a lot of people dying of, say, pollution or total gridlock or total infrastructure failure. So you get into the mode of the dysfunctional dystopia kind of city. And as I said, we have a curious way of finding our way through something so that it doesn't quite become that. But you always get a sense there's a threat to it. I mean, I never thought I'd describe Sunbury as a potential dysfunctional dystopia. But as an example in microcosm, the amount of traffic that you see in Sunbury going to the city at the moment is now comparable to when we used to live in Jakarta and going to the outskirts of Jakarta on certain days. More and more and more housing happening. And you can see just from that little example how Sunbury, for example, could become not unlivable, but impossible or very difficult to leave <laughs> to actually get to the city. And that's just one case. Now, presumably that is happening around cities all around Australia at the moment. That's a second threat. And the third one is probably related to the first is the imagery of the one continuous megapolis. So for example, absolutely no break in the metropolitan area at all. And there's some people in a roundabout way who actually propose this. So in other words, to have this kind of uh, megapolis from Brisbane to Melbourne, although in fairness, not necessarily continuous a build-up area, but it's a danger. I mean, you've always got this danger of the more intensity of economic activity, the more spread out the city and conjoin the city and different settlements will become. And that can produce very uneven results in a nation. So for example, if we had the one big megapolis spreading from Brisbane to Melbourne, then all the economic activity would be attracted to that, whereas the Perth and Adelaide would miss out. But you get that more in Southeast Asia. So the Jakarta, Bandung, corridor of economic activity is very vibrant, whereas the rest of Indonesia is, or a lot of it is actually poverty stricken. So there's the three fears that I would have, vulnerability, dysfunctional dystopia, and the one continuous megapolis. And I think it can, doesn't take much imagination to see how they can all be related to each other. It's quite clear how they can connect to each other. How realistic do you feel that all these fears come together Funnily enough, broadly speaking, I'm actually a bit of an optimist. In a sense, the analogy is probably we're in a pickup truck, presumably, and heading towards a cliff, but we're going to run out of petrol before we get to the cliff. And we're actually going to be forced to stop doing things 
because we can no longer do them. <laughs> We're actually running out of book. And the climate change issue is actually preventing us from doing things and settling in certain areas. And unfortunately, it's getting to the point where we can actually have to stop doing things that we actually have to change direction. I think you see that happening very slowly at the moment. Look, let's see what happens. I mean, as I said, there's a battle going on about broader political structures. And I think that if we go down the more democratic route, that cities will tend to follow that and become more centres of civic deliberation and opportunities and alternatives. And when that happens, we can consider different ways of doing things. So, you know, look, I'm reasonably optimistic about most things, including this, but I don't think it's going to be a matter of muddling through. I think there's going to be a paradigm shift and again, it will probably get back to the idea of the city as a place to live for first and foremost. Then what are the opportunities? What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? Well, cities are very good at producing exchange of knowledge. And when you do that, you produce solutions. That's the first one. The second one, and again, it's related to the point, getting back to the same point, is the development of civic democracy for pretty much the same reasons. You have a lot of people, and usually in cities with a fair degree of education, a fair number of facilities and opportunities to meet and discuss things and exchange ideas. And related yet again, I think, is that cities in some cases, and certainly for most of the time in Australian cities, is what you see is diversity in harmony. Hmm. Uh, in particular, if the city provides at least the economic basis for people to survive reasonably comfortably, then you tend to have diversity in harmony. And it's in those cities where you have diversity, but without economic equity, that you don't have the harmony. That would be the broad way I put it. The only thing I'll throw in here to complicate things is I think there's some differences between Sydney and Melbourne for reasons I can't quite figure out. They're both multicultural cities, and yet the relations in Sydney do not seem to be as harmonious to me as they are in Melbourne. And I can't figure out whether this is something to do with the some of the old arguments of Sydney versus Melbourne, that Melbourne, because its weather is so cold, that people stay inside and they think and become well-educated and therefore more open-minded, whereas Sydney is this brazen global city of, you know, stuff you sort of thing, with the possibly the primary indicator being the intolerance indicator is the number of shock jocks, right-wing shock jocks you can count on the air. And mm -hmm. cities, there's a number of them, and Melbourne, probably a couple. So you've got this funny difference there between the two. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, even so, Sydney is a great place to visit. I mean, it's, I feel really comfortable walking around. There's some subtle differences, differences even within Australian cities. But again, the Commonwealth can play a very big role in equaling out things, and it does. And it gets back to those two words again, safety net. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the real, real diabolical poverty that you get in nations such as the United States. So diversity in this meaning is for humans, not in diversity that people and nature and the built environment live in harmony with the different types of living things together. Oh, well, look, I was thinking of human diversity, but mm -hmm. now that you mention it, that is perfectly okay by me as well. I mean, I was really thinking of ethnic diversity and sexual orientation diversity and disability mm -hmm. diversity. I'm still coming to terms with some of the, the language associated with the whatever is post-species or whatever, you know. I'm still coming to terms with that. I'm a vegetarian, by the way, so I'm quite serious about this sort of thing. But yeah, sure, diversity, including diversity of species, but you're not going to, to instill a coon as the Lord Mayor. I mean, it's still people who are, I'm a bit of a humanist in that regard, I must admit, mm -hmm. that we are the master of identity. 
And I think that even with Indigenous people, historical relationship with the land makes it very clear that they manage the land. I'm not familiar with this line of reasoning about, I'm not sure what it's on about, of animals being somehow master of their own destiny or something like that. So we've always been the resource managers and we either stuff it up or we do it really well. I just love this image, a raccoon for a mayor. (laughs) Well, perhaps I'm... Some people, like, we, we're a bit facetious about things that, we, frankly, we don't understand and we should shut up about. So I might be being very unfair to this sort of whatever this line of reasoning is, the post-speciesist or whatever it is. But I think you, you're probably coming to a question later about how we integrate nature and the built form, I think, later. Before we get to that question, what does equity mean to you? We've got to take a pretty hard line on this, and it means that wealth is distributed pretty well evenly across the board. A society that has equity, you couldn't identify any rich people and you couldn't identify any poor people. You just couldn't. You'd look around, no, there's no poor people here, there's no rich people. Obviously, there's going to be variation in that. So that's an outcome. But equity can also be about access, access to services, access to green space, access to jobs, access to people, access to social life. Okay. Then what is the difference between equity and equality? That's a good one. Well, equality is probably more to do with what I was actually saying about equity. So it's equality is an outcome. Equity is a pathway. Thank you so much. Okay, so getting back to how to integrate nature into the built environment, how would you do that with the acknowledgement that people are managing the land and people are the prime species who need to govern the whole system? How could we do it in a more thoughtful way? We already have these ideas that have been around for a long time since Ebenezer Howard, but the expression of it in the Melbourne situation is the green wedges notion, where on one side of the road is a suburb and on the other side of the road is bushland. So you develop the city in the well, the Copenhagen finger approach where you intersperse green space along with corridors in the middle. So I think that's one way of doing it. But the second way of doing it is to look at the broader geography of a region and acknowledge that the green spaces in between them is very valuable and that therefore there's a lot that is horrible about some of the smaller cities in that region or what are often called second tier cities where it's really quite easy to access green space because the cities are so small but in other words to have that kind of mentality when you're thinking about how to access nature is to keep the city fairly small but the third way is probably the more traditional way and to think in terms of something as small as individual allotments and to revisit the idea that a backyard, well, I'm not revisiting it, but to support the idea that the backyard is grossly underrated as a way of integrating nature. And certainly, if you want to get into it, you can put in native trees and you'll have a whole heap of birds and all that sort of thing. And these are remarkably important. And I just don't think that we're coming to terms with that question. I mean, firstly, I think that people should have a backyard. I mean, I really do. And we haven't quite come to terms with the idea that how to provide that. Because when we do, if we accept people should have a backyard, ideally, then at least we can ask questions about how big that backyard should be. Now, at the moment, you've either got a backyard or you've got an apartment kind of thing. And I just think we need to move beyond that. But then again, with apartments, they're generally surrounded by concrete. So why not half of that being a market garden? Why not have a community garden? But again, this gets back to this question of people sitting down and saying, well, what do you want? What do you want in your neighbourhood? So I think there's a number of ways we can actually engage with nature. And also the sort of pocket size notion of rooftop gardens is another option. There's wall gardens is another option. 
Now, some of this stuff is so straightforward, it's not funny, really. I mean, it's not, you don't have to think about it. You just got to do it. So there are numerous possibilities. But I do have to say that the number one enemy of nature in the cities is the private motor vehicle. And it does not matter whether it's an electrical vehicle or whether it flies or goes under the ground or whatever. Quite simply, the amount of urban space that's taken up by roads is the number one enemy of incorporating green space into a city. And again, this is that really hard question about that is not really being asked. So I think we need a bit of imagination here and imagine a neighbourhood with no cars. I mean, what would that mean? Maybe you'd offer people half-price property prices or a free bus service at the end of the corridor. That's a question we've got to ask. Are these questions being asked at the moment or not at all? And these are just, for now, theoretical marvelling for you. They are being asked. So, for example, here at RMIT, we're getting someone to come in from Barcelona to talk about the superblock idea where you actually prohibit traffic in a block and you combine the blocks and then the traffic just goes around the side. So there's discussion about this a lot. There's the 20-minute neighbourhood notion, which is actually enshrined as an idea, at least, in Plan Melbourne. But I guess if you ask most people in the suburbs what you know about a 20-minute neighbourhood or a Barcelona superblock, they would look at you rather strangely. And it's exactly those people that need to be engaged in terms of these ideas. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think that uh, people are fearful, rightly, of anything that looks like change away from the day-to-day ability to go to work. And that's the very first question that people would ask. What's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with my job? So, you know, if you said to the people there in Sunbury, okay, we're going to have a block, there'll be no cars, sorry, but you can have the property for half price, they probably say, well, how are we going to get to work? So you've got to put in all this stuff, this, you know, bus and location of employment and so on. On the other hand, I'm probably being a bit cynical. I think most people, if you explain that sort of scenario to them, they say, well, okay, half price property, free bus service, but sorry, no car, or maybe you can, you know, hire an electric vehicle once a month. Uh, What do you think? People will at least give it a real serious think about it. Then what are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities for you? Well, cities are good at generating wealth and they're very lousy at redistributing it. But and part of that implication is the agglomeration benefits of the, the bigger cities. So you've got the hospitals, you've got the universities, you've got the jobs, you've got the range of labour markets, you've got the exciting social activity, recreation activities, sporting activities. They're good at that. The question is always, can they be good at agglomeration benefits and distribute the wealth more evenly? And they haven't been able to do that either because... I mean, I'm not sure. Is it because of the nature of the agglomerations or is it because some people miss out on the agglomerations? And to bring that back to sort of more straightforward thinking, that's partly to do with job access. So in other words, you tend to get jobs that are clumped together in particular regions and some people can't access them either in geographical terms or because the skills that they have don't match what jobs are there available. Mm -hmm. So I think that strength of the city is also the weakness. It's all about agglomerations, but there's a lot of imperfections about agglomerations. And you've still got this lingering issue that wealth is created, but it's not distributed evenly. So that's one. I think that cities will always be good at that. In terms of the strength of a city, again, I guess it depends on how we think about cities a little bit. So I think that the strength of it can be that we can simply think and talk about it in a variety of different ways. So like I said at the start, that I mean, I think cities are this kind of gigantic money-making machine, but it doesn't have to be. We can think of a city 
as a place to live first and foremost and get that into people's heads and get that into policy people's heads and get that into the, the minds of people who are interested in economic development. And all of a sudden, that can become the strength of a city. I mean, cities can be a bit of a chameleon in a way, and that could be a good thing if we can actually push it in a more positive direction. So I guess cities are all this infrastructure that's stuck in the ground, but the way we look at them can be quite flexible. We can be quite open-minded about them because they are a city. And in some ways, getting back to this diversity notion, in some ways, therefore, their future can be a bit more open than, say, a rural area. For example, where it's good farmland, you don't want to change it, but cities are a bit more enigmatic and they can actually be an advantage. So I guess generator of wealth and agglomerations, providing a sort of environment where it can be interpreted in a number of ways. And related to that, I think the third thing is that cities have been and always will be the generator of ideas. In many cases, those ideas can be repressed. But as we see even in locations such as Iran, that you can't do it forever. And those sort of rebellions that occur in places like Iran aren't happening out in the countryside. They're happening in the middle of cities where you've got the media and so on paying attention. So you mentioned that cities are these agglomeration of opportunities and vast generation opportunities, and it could be the place for civic society. Do you think about whether or when the political system will turn from countries to city-states? Oh, I don't think so. And I hope not, actually. It sounds like okay. a very uneven hour. So if you take Australia, for example, what would be the... I mean, Singapore is a city-state. Hong Kong is a city-state. If you look at the Australian situation, what would be the city-states? They'd be, you know, Melbourne and Sydney. But that would be reinforcing the... I talk about the benefits of agglomeration. There's also disbenefits where they get to a tipping point where there's too much traffic, there's too much crime, there's too much pollution, there's not enough jobs in the right location, and it becomes unpleasant. So these agglomeration benefits turn to disbenefits, and the way of dealing with that is to look outside the would-be city-state to the second-tier string of cities for opportunities. And in Australia, it's a bit awkward because the second-tier cities are fairly low in population, so it's hard to sort of work out whether they could be defined as second-tier cities or not. So, look, I think the city-state idea doesn't appeal to me much. It applies in very unusual circumstances, like the island city-state. And in the Australian context, if it were to be applied, it would merely magnify the growth and the size of the larger cities, which are having problems because of their growth and their size. And I think a redistribution of urban activity and economic activity as being the antithesis of city-states and a more desirable way to go. But we've got a long way to understand how it applies in the Australian situation with a lot of complicated things going on in terms of the environment and farmland and bushland. But it's something that we need to start talking about again. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. As a closing question, what is your role yeah. in establishing the future of cities? If I look at it from a professional role, I think that, I mean, you can see the way I've talked about things and the sort of things I'm preoccupied with, and that's pretty much what I convey to my students. And also in terms of the research, it tends to follow that sort of line. And I'm lucky to have had a pretty broad education, as I said, and I've ended up with this moniker economic geographer, but there's a lot of environmental sensibility built into that as well. So while I can certainly see the value of the cities as this agglomeration machine, and I think that continue to be the case if it's managed properly, and again, if the overarching political sentiment comes in to even things out, that's okay. But also, 
we have to have more than one lens on a city and the other lens on a city is an environmental one which actually sees the city as a metabolism almost as if a sort of a small version of the Gaia hypothesis where you've got inputs and outputs and you start thinking about it and measuring them in terms of energy inputs and waste outputs and air and water and that's a long way from thinking of the city as this kind of gigantic bank and it gets back to the fundamental idea i think that and i said being a bit facetious about the one you know rocky raccoon for lord mayor but humans in managing the environment actually what they're doing is they're interacting with it and they're having an interrelationship with it and that is exactly how we should be seeing the city as having an interrelationship with the environment now that can extend from the point of view of the green wedges idea but it can also extend to the point of what we make cities of and concrete and buildings are one of the i think it's 30 percent of greenhouse gas emissions so we're going to have to start again getting back onto this cities as metabolisms idea look at this notion of the circular economy and coincidentally while i'm not teaching urban economics i'm teaching another subject called environmental economics when we're trying to come to terms with precisely this idea so that's from a professional point of view but from a personal point of view i'm just like any other mug really i think that i'm a potential civic citizen or an actual civic citizen of the city who votes and comments and discusses things and i certainly share the potential or the actuality of being a civic citizen with everyone in this country every single person has the ability and the right to at least form some kind of an opinion of what sort of city they would like. And just like everyone else in that regard. So there's professional approach, but I think that the, as I've probably implied, I think that the political side of it is probably stronger. I think that's the more important one. And you can be trained in as many urban planning theories as you like, but if the political climate isn't appropriate, it won't make any difference. And at this point, regrettably, the urban planning profession follows and is guided by the development industry rather than the other way around. And the only way I think that can be changed is if you actually change the economic system so that the developers are actually the, if not the planners, then are actually either the government or more appropriately, more idealistically, perhaps are the people. Now, who knows where that's heading, but we actually need to make that statement to begin with before we can start filling in the, the blanks about what it might actually mean. But that is a fact. I mean, developers lead the planners rather than the other way around. And look, understandably for them, they build houses first and everything else later. And my colleague, Melanie Deverne from Centre for Urban Research was making that very comment recently that developers will build the housing first and they'll build everything else next because it's more profitable. So you can see how fundamental and that's the only way it's going to change. We need a fundamental economic change. And I mean, if you said that in an interview for an urban planning position, you're unlikely to get the job. That is actually what we need to do. So look, it gets all the way back to David Harvey and the Fev and the right to the city stuff, all that stuff from the 60s and 70s that I think we need to revisit and at least put that on the table and see where we can go with it. There's one final point on that. If you think this is all pie in the sky ideal, some of the most significant heritage and conservation achievements in Sydney and Melbourne, many of your listeners may not realise this, were actually achieved by the trade union movement. And I'm talking of the green bands in Sydney, and I'm even talking about the city baths in Melbourne, which would have been demolished if it wasn't for the union movement. So that's an example of a community organisation that had influence over the city. Now, I can't see the of any union at the moment that could say the same about what they're doing at, doing at the moment. So that's just an example of how we can mould the city a different way with a different group of people. Anthony, thank you so much for your work. 
on the cities and on the future of cities. And I highly appreciate that you had time to appear on the podcast. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? It's just open your minds to what sort of city you want and recognize that we've got the benefit of having a society where you can make some comments on it. And the more you do make comments on various things, the stronger that democracy will be. And with a strong democracy, I think you actually have a democratic city. Anthony, thank you so much. It was really interesting to hear from Anthony how much a political system can influence a city and its future, in his opinion. Not to mention his highlight to integrate nature into urban areas better. Paul Brookbanks talked about similar ideas in episode 87. You can find out more about Anthony online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Anthony's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for Cities podcast? 